store has found a used copy of Introduction to Infectious Diseases, 2nd Edition. Textbooks are usually pricey, but medical textbooks ought to come with fixed-rate mortgages. Still, I need to find that book if I'm going to complete my online course by the end of the semester. I'll pull into the drive-thru, I tell Bugs, knowing he won't mind. You want McDonald's? He nods, so I point the van toward Highway 441. Mr. Gerald make any pickups today? Bugs asks. I ease onto the highway, amazed at how easily my children have accepted the ongoing work of the funeral home. None today. See this? I glance in the rearview mirror and see Bugs waving his construction paper creation. Yes. It's a stegosaurus. Can I give it to Gerald? I think he'd like that. I force a smile as an unexpected wave of grief rises within me. Like a troublesome relative who doesn't realize she's worn out her welcome, sorrow often catches me by surprise. Gerald, the elderly embalmer at Fairlawn, has become a surrogate father for my sons. Thomas, my ex-husband and my children's father, has been gone for months, but in some ways, he's never been closer. He lies in the Pine Forest Cemetery, less than two miles from our house, so we can't help but think of him every time we drive by. I get bugs of vanilla ice cream cone at the McDonald's drive-thru, and then we run to the grocery store and the dry cleaner. I'll call the bookstore later. No sense in going there when a simple phone call will suffice. Finally, we turn into the long driveway that leads to the Fairlawn Funeral Home. Gerald has poured a new concrete pad next to the garage, and as I park on it, Bugs notices that the call car is gone. Uh Uh-oh. He looks at me. Somebody bit the dust. I press my lips together. A couple of months ago, I would have mumbled something about the old station wagon maybe needing a wash, but now I know there's no reason to shield my children from the truth. We are in the death care industry. The squeamishness I felt when we first arrived vanished the day I walked into the prep room and gloved up to help Gerald lay out my ex-husband. Come in the house, I tell my son. I'll pour you a glass of milk. Chapter 2 Randolph Harris crosses his leg at the knee and runs his fingers along the trouser leg to reinforce the pleat. The private detective across the desk swivels his chair toward the wall and brings the phone closer to his mouth, employing body language intended to remind his guest that he is not part of the telephone conversation. Randolph folds his hands and struggles to be patient. He set this appointment for one, canceling two patients in order to drive to this shabby strip mall and meet with Dexter Duggan. He expects a modicum of professionalism in return, but no secretary greeted him at the door, nor did the sandy-haired detective invite him into the inner office until five minutes after the appointed time. When the phone rang at six after, Randolph expected Duggan to ignore the call, but instead the man picked up and launched into a whispered conversation. Randolph heaves an indiscreet sigh and looks around the office. 
A laminated map of North Carolina hangs above the desk, with pushpins marking the cities of Raleigh, Charlotte, and Asheville. A bookcase against the paneled wall holds rows of phone books, city names printed on the spines above logos of walking fingers. The second shelf holds camera equipment, several old Nikons, long lenses with capped ends, a battered leather bag, a stainless steel canister with a black lid. A couple of framed photographs balance on the lowest shelf, crowded by a pair of mud-caked boots, a Durham Bulls baseball cap, and a smudged Panama hat. He focuses on the photographs. A smiling boy, probably six or seven, and a bikini-clad woman standing next to a ski boat. Oh, yes. Dexter Duggan is a class act. Randolph will stand and walk out if Mr. Duggan...